Hi, and welcome to the AI Experience. I'm Jeff Johnson. And I'm Lloyd Danzig. And in this podcast, we explore the topics and trends that are shaping the creation and dispersion of artificial intelligence around the world. All right, welcome to another episode. This week's special, we're going to be talking about, you guessed it, the coronavirus. This pandemic is sweeping the globe, and it involves not just technology, but policy and social constructs as well. And so Lloyd and I go a little bit off the beaten path of AI and ML to really discuss what's happening scientifically, what's happening socially, and what's happening economically in relation to this virus. That being said, I also want to point out that there is an amazing amount of data out there for the aspiring ML or AI scientists to gather and leverage to create a better picture or help find information that has gone unfound about this virus. So please uh, go do some research. Johns Hopkins is one of the best places that you can go to find data about the spread of this virus. Um, But we hope you enjoy this special episode. All right. Thank, thanks, Jeff, for, for joining me and everyone for, for tuning in to this episode of the AI Experience. Uh, as, as you can hear, I'm speaking first uh, as opposed to Jeff. We have a little bit of a, a special episode and had to make some kind of last-minute adjustments in order to get this out on time uh, in light of what's going on uh, with the coronavirus here in the United States uh, and around the world. Uh, it's, it's Thursday, uh, March 19th at approximately 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, at the time of recording, and as I think anyone uh, who's paying attention to anything knows, uh, what is true today was not true yesterday, and what's true today certainly uh, may not be true tomorrow. So kind of let that be a disclaimer. And uh, before we get into this episode, I did want to give a a shout out to one of our charter members, uh, Dr. Javier Mendoza. I don't know if he'll be able to listen to this. He's uh, a gastroenterologist, uh, an acclaimed gastroenterologist in Seville, uh, who's been offering out his medical consultation services free of charge uh, via a telehealth portal uh, that many people in Spain are familiar with uh, for those who have been afflicted. So, you know, wanted to, to send that shout out, but uh, perhaps start on a semi-bright or, or perhaps at least bittersweet note. Uh, Jeff, I know you are one of the few people in the entire world uh, who just closed a uh, hopefully fairly lucrative business deal that, that you've been working on uh, for quite a while. I know that I am on fundraising calls talking to venture capital firms and angel syndicates all the time. And uh, though some are still active, an enormous amount are pulling term sheets, pulling deals off the table, backing out of leases. And first of all, congratulations. But second of all, would love to hear what were some of the challenges and the unique aspects of uh, navigating what the, what you've been working on for so long uh, in this crazy uh, kind of apocalyptic uh, world of the coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, it's a great question, Lloyd. Um, first of all, thanks for the thanks for the thanks. Uh, <laughs> it is pretty amazing that we got this done. Um, as Lloyd mentioned, we just we just completed a transaction of our business uh, literally yesterday, um, and it, this was. This was the most interesting, um, nerve-wracking experience. 
that I've that I've ever had in business, uh, just due to the stack up of things that occurred. So we've been working on this deal for for a few um, few months, um, really, kind of early stages. Started at the the end of 2019, um, ramped up in earnest, kind of set a closing path, um, and that path intersected basically perfectly with the start of coronavirus spreading. And um, the, the company that we sold to is a publicly traded business that operates worldwide. And so effectively what started happening was, um, A, the people on their side of the business were getting pulled in a million directions because they were having to deal with global changes to their business, whether that was in China first and then Italy. Uh, they have a lot of operations in Europe. Um, so they have like 44,000 employees around the globe, roughly. And so as you can imagine, um, this deal went all the way up to the CEO and he's busy doing a bunch of things. On top of that, um, there were a lot of uh, signals in the market, both uh, in, a, in, an, in a leading sense and in an actual market movement sense that um, gave us a lot of heartburn about whether or not this deal was going to go through and whether or not um, it was just going to get dropped because of uh, sh- uh, really the stock market being so volatile over the last few weeks. But um, I think you know the thing that, that allowed us to get this done was um, we had a lot of buy-in uh, on both sides that this was the right move to make. Um, and, um, look, I mean, I'll be honest, I think one of the things that, that is potentially challenging, uh, and wasn't necessarily the case for our business, but is the case for a lot of businesses is, um, can you make it through this time period? Um, and so that, you know, that wasn't giving us complete heartburn. We we probably would have been okay, but definitely breathing a a little bit of a sigh of relief that we're able to, um, to have a much bigger balance sheet and, and have that option open to us. Um, and not be worried about about a cash crunch in this time period because this is this is unprecedented and um, a lot of people have been talking in the media about what moves need to be made and I think I think some drastic action needs to be taken pretty soon or we're going to see um, you know continued deal activity slow down obviously but more so than that actual businesses starting to to close and uh, unclear if they'll be able to weather that storm. Yeah, uh, that, that that was great and and I know this is really a tech and an AI podcast, not a, a financial markets and economics podcast, but uh, it seems at this time everyone uh, who everyone has, has an eye on, you know, what does their 401k look like? What does their, their personal account look like? And without going down that rabbit hole too hard, Jeff, you are someone who, you know, you have a diverse set of interests and skills and, and knowledge. You have, you know, worked in, in, in roles that cause you to cross multiple verticals in multiple industries, uh, communications, operations, logistics, sports, media, you, you kind of have touched upon it all in different aspects of, of your career. And with that, you know, and with the first hand, first person view you've had in, into the capital markets, you know, most people's experience with capital markets, if they have any, is trading stocks. And that's the secondary market that comes decades after the company raises its seed round and, you know, issues its first convertible note. And uh, I know that's something you've had experience with. What do you think it's going to take? Anyone who tries to predict a level or a time that represents the bottom of the market should not be doing so with certainty, because I think we've seen any subjective or objective qualitative or quantitative measure of the markets show how unpredictable they are. But what do you think it's going to take to get markets, public or private, to sort of bottom out, to get stocks going back up, to get uh, you know deal fl- and capital flowing back into the private sector? At some point, you would think 
people with enough cash on the sidelines, you know, and tons of disposable income will look and see a stock like Walmart, Disney, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, whatever it is, and say, this stock is so cheap and is paying such a high dividend yield that even if the pandemic persists, you know, again, in theory, to make an absurd argument, if you could buy Disney stock for 10 cents, you'd probably buy as many shares as you could. Same thing probably for 20 cents, 30 cents, a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars probably, and then maybe you'd start getting into a point where people are thinking. But the point is, at some at some level, at some level of drawdown, people with raw powder will say this is too good of a deal to pass up over the long run, and, and, and so I need to come in. And the same thing can be said in private markets. And I'm just I guess I'm wrong because that either that will happen and the point is just much lower than expected or it's never going to happen and people are going to be storing cash under their mattresses, so to speak. And I'm just wondering, what do you think? What do you think it's going to take? I know I'm looking forward to that first day where sports come back and everyone's at an awesome sporting event. States and cities that have been under quarantine are going to have quite a party uh, the day that the bars and the restaurants reopen. But what is it going to be? And is it a complete eradication and, you know, active case count equals zero uh, that will be needed to to get some sort of relief here? Yeah. So maybe we can start with that last thing, because I think it's important to frame up what's what's happening here uh, from a from an actual epidemiology perspective. So and I am not an epidemiologist, but I have been listening a lot and reading a lot. This is fascinating to me. Um, and I've, it's, it is fairly clear at this point that there is consensus in the scientific community that the likelihood this disease is contracted worldwide is very high, as we're kind of seeing. And the percentages that, that people are throwing around are between 40 and 70% of the world will get this virus. So just let that sink in. 40 to 70%. That means billions of people are going to be infected. No, wait, hold on, Jeff. Jeff, hold on. Is that, that, hold on. Now, is that the percentage of people who will literally, by definition, have the virus in their body or will who, who will experience symptoms? Because one of the things I'm wondering is what percentage of people perhaps who have been transmitting it, have these sort of latent viruses mm-hmm. where they may technically have it and fit into a statistic, but their personal experience is not one of what they're hearing in the media. Absolutely. Yeah. So that is that is people who are infected with the virus, whether you show symptoms or not. And that's so what you just got at is the interesting piece, which is we're not quite sure, um, at least in the US and in Europe, it's a little bit different in Korea because they've been doing a really good job of testing people. But um it is not clear how many people actually have the virus, and scientists are pretty sure that there's a huge amount of transmission that is happening um, by people who are asymptomatic or effectively feel like they've got a little bit of a cold, but nothing that's really a big deal, nothing that's going to hamper them. Though it, it is also incorrect that people are saying this only hurts old people. Um, yes, something north of 50% of, of the people who have been hospitalized are, are over the age of 60, um, but the other half are, are people who are younger. Um, there are people who have been put on ventilators that are in their 30s and, and were otherwise in good health. So um, the way this virus seems to be uh, working and causing most of its damage is by creating an overactive immune response. 
And so um, for some people, they get it and their immune system is okay. Other people, their immune system goes a little haywire and it causes them to... Right, that's the uh, the, the, cyto, the cytokine storm, Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, the cytokine storm, that's, yeah. like a pretty, that's a pretty severe reaction. That's like something that you'd get from like smallpox. That's what that but, is though, right? That is a, that's a severe overreaction yes. on behalf of your immune system, which very cruelly and paradox or or, or, or or ironically, I guess, ends up, you know, causing your demise. Right. And and really, I mean, what happens is people will end up getting, you know, symptoms that are like pneumonia, where you get fluid in the lungs, and it's, it's really bad, right? So, but yes. So, but the reason I frame that up that way is that th- that is the statistic based on kind of what's happening right now in terms of population spreading and community spreading is what it's called. Um, and the danger with us saying, well, a lot of people are asymptomatic. And so what's really the problem is there's this long burn effect that's going to happen where people will get sick. People will be dying continuously. And we really don't want that. So like theoretically what the UK is doing, we could think of as a model. They're basically saying, ah, we're just going to kind of keep going along business as usual. I'm not sure if that's changed as of today, but over the last few days, it's kind of what their plan was. Um, it seems like that is the wrong choice to make from from my perspective, um, from a medical and, and health safety standpoint. But um, maybe maybe that could have worked. That time has passed. So now we're in this really weird situation where, to your point, Lloyd, the markets are going haywire. People are wondering where the bottom is. And um, I don't think we need to be at zero cases. Um, that will take a long time. That will probably take 18 months. Um, but we need to see a leveling off, a flattening of the curve. Um, that's what all this social distancing is about. Um, we need to have actually more of a long tail in a sense um, and have less burden on the healthcare systems. I think it's going to take that as kind of a leading indicator for the markets to return um, because I think that's really what happened, right? I mean, people are scared. Um, this is a classic fear response. The volatility in the markets is insane. Like 20% up one day, 20% down the other day, 20%, 20%. I mean, that we're hitting the limits um, on trading. I think they've been hit like four or five times since this really started in the U.S. in earnest. Yeah, the, 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 cir- the circuit breakers. You know, it, it's interesting because not only in the markets but in, in the rest of the world, I, I, I don't think you have to downplay the seriousness of the virus to say that the panic and the hysteria surrounding it is equally, if not more, potent uh, in terms of causing you know widespread damage. And certainly, we have a large number of people who who live paycheck to paycheck, one to two weeks, uh, you know, worth of of spare change in the bank account at any given time. And we're about to get to that one to two week range where where those people are not going to pay all of their bills and are going to have to start selecting which ones to pay and not pay. And we'll have to see if the government decides to give, you know, mortgage relief or, uh, you know, writes everyone a check for $6,000 and, you know, obviously all, all the different things. One of the reasons why it's so interesting is because at any given point, if we decided to lock everyone in their houses for 14 days, all 7 billion people in the world, 14 days you're locked in your house and you can't leave until you get a test and you test negative. That would almost certainly, again, if we had the resources and the, you know, infrastructure, that would almost certainly be the end of it. We would guarantee to be rid of it in less than in three weeks. And, and in fact, if everyone agreed from a game theoretical perspective, if everyone agreed to do to self-quarantine, then for 14 days, then, then we'd be done. But of course, first of all, 
the, the, the condition is in different stages in different countries. Second of all, the way the game theory actually ends up working is if I look at, out my window and I see one other person out there and I see, well, if he's going to spread the virus, I might as well go outside because I know that I'm using hand sanitizer. And if any, if, if you know, and, right. And then, and then you go down the slippery slope. And so it's fascinating. And that's why I wanted to, you know, this is an AI podcast after all. I did want to segue into that. Um, there are some interesting ways that artificial intelligence is, is playing a role uh, in the kind of current pandemic. And chances are, uh, I think we've seen, first of all, just from the frustrations involving the lead time involved for clinical trials to get a vaccine out, how hard it is to come up with a widespread, you know, biological, organic, or chemical solution to something like this that is administered very quickly or almost any scientific one, and that generally it's policy uh, that that needs to, you know, lead in the immediate, and, and then you hope that you learned your previous lessons and have technology from prior. But we know, I think, and I hope that listeners know by this point, you could think of AI as real predictive analytics on steroids, and uh, data sets are being open sourced and made available. Uh, anyone who wants to can very easily search them, and uh, people can run various types of predictive algorithms to figure out any number of the types of things that you might want to figure out. For example, what factors are most predictive in whether the virus will spread if you find out certain pieces of portions of the population are extra vulnerable or extra safe, that might impact your policy decisions. Knowing what cocktails, combinations of existing medications, vaccines, and treatment regimens are most likely to, to help. All sorts of things uh, th- th- that can you know, be gleaned. And with that, I wanted to kind of step back and, Jeff, ask you whether it's AI, blockchain, technology as a whole, what role do you think technology and those who possess the power to wield it uh, have in a situation like this? You know, you look at Elon Musk is saying they might use one of the Tesla factories to make ventilators. Um, and originally this factory was, I believe, you know, uh, was in some controversy with the governor of California because they were supposed to shut down and Tesla wanted to remain open and be essential. And then Elon Musk made a kind of a sarcastic comment about how when you build spaceships with, you know, life support systems, having a few ventilators for a hospital is very easy. Um, and it's, it's just kind of a, a, a fascinating time where there's a very small portion of people with a very rare skill set that may have an ability to help. Some of them may not even be aware of their ability to help. Uh, but yeah, curious, kind of open-ended. What role does technology play in a time like this? I definitely think that there's some applications in, in the AI, you know, ML space that you mentioned. But I think as we kind of stated at the beginning of this, it's probably, th- this is a little more, uh, focused on some basic technologies like ventilators, like how do we make sure there's enough masks for doctors, right? Um, hospitals are starting to run short of gloves and masks. Um, and that is, that's crazy. Um, I think it was Bill Maher a few weeks ago in his show was talking about how it's insane to him that in World War II, um, basically right after Pearl Harbor, within you know two weeks, all of Ford and GM's factories were converted to making airplanes and munitions and tanks and whatever. Um, and you know we're we're 
a couple months into this, maybe maybe really a solid month on the U.S. side, and we haven't seen that type of behavior. And, and I think that's, Lloyd, when you said technology, it's kind of a, a funny thing. And to me, this is almost a, it's related to what we talk about a lot. Sometimes there's this imagination element of technology is going to solve all of our problems. And, oh, if we just had the right technology. And I, and I think Silicon Valley hasn't helped with that. Um, you know, there's a lot of quote unquote wizards out there, um, computer wizards, uh, machine making wizards like Elon Musk, who um, say, oh, you know, we can build the machines and the machines are going to do everything. And, and while I do think the future of technology will bode very well for our species, situations like this make it pretty obvious that there is a stark difference between, oh, maybe we can make more ventilators, maybe that can help people. And hey, everyone needs to wake up and we need to make an actual change to our society socially, and people need to enforce it. Um, I don't want to go down a too deep of a political route, but I mean, I think our government has failed us really intensely in this situation. I think they're finally w- waking up, and things are finally starting to happen. But um, you know, in a way, it's like there's no technology there. I mean, yeah, I guess they're using email and phones and things like that, but. Um, it's it's not it's not been enough, and um, I think the idea that that technology can save us from this is wrong. Like we need to just realize that um, this is a virus. The virus is spreading because humans are refusing to um, keep themselves out of contact with each other. In some cases, they are doing it uh, in a very public way, like spring breakers in Florida. And um, the government needs to step in. And I'm not saying we need to do what China did. That that was crazy um, and probably would would result in, in some type of quasi-revolution. But um, look, I mean, if we don't if we don't take this seriously soon, I think we're going to start to see this rolling effect. And, you know, technology is not going to save us. Elon Musk can make all the ventilators that he wants. But if um, this if this pandemic continues in this way, meaning not really restricting movement, some cities shut down, you get panicked buying of toilet paper, we're going to see the restaurant industry start to collapse. It already is. The hotel industry is going to collapse. The airlines are going to collapse. The housing market is going to collapse. And those are things that they employ so many people and they're such backbones of society I don't know what the ramification is after that. I mean, uh, my friend and I have been discussing a lot like what the future looks like. And I'm like, man, Walmart's going to have a great quarter. Zoom is going to have a great quarter. But it, it, you know, does it matter if all the airlines in the United States have gone bankrupt? <laughs> Speaking of Zoom having uh, a great quarter. So uh, Zoom, uh, the stock symbol for which is ZM, Zoom Video Communications, is I'm sure everyone, if they weren't already, is now aware. Uh, it's probably one of the, the leading, and certainly in Silicon Valley, leading uh, teleconferencing, video communication, web conferencing, webinar uh, softwares out there. Uh, but something interesting happened a few, like about a year ago, and then again, eh, maybe a few months ago, and then a few months after that, and then recently, and it's happening right now, where the stock symbol Z-O-O-M is for a different company. It's like Zoom Technologies, some Chinese company with no revenues. And it is Zoom Technologies was up 51.8% today and is up like 
150% in the past couple of days because people are confusing it with Zoom uh, Zoom video. And you could actually Google this and see that it has happened before. Oh, my God. But that's there are, amazing. But it is uh, – look, I have been unable to short it, and I've been unable to buy puts. So if you're able to, at a reasonable rate of, uh, <laughs> of borrow, please do. Um, but on a more serious note, Jeff, I think – I don't even know if you're right or you're wrong and who's to say who is because we're all making these probabilistic guesses. But certainly I've heard from a number of very smart people uh, who weathered other past storms, particularly in the market, 72, 73, 87, 9-11, 2008, 2009 financial crisis and say that this is worse more volatile, more whiplash, more everything, more extreme. They're more worried. Uh, I am hearing some people optimistic, but some say similar things about the percentages of restaurants that are going to go out of business and never come back. And then, of course, like you said, what does that do not only to the restaurant owner, but the people who relied on them for income? Uh, I don't think the market has necessarily or we have yet absorbed what is going on when hairdressers and masseuses start asking their clients to advance them money. Uh, there's a restaurant in New, in New York City that's allowing people to buy $100 gift certificates for $75. Uh, but of course, if they go out of business, kind of like, like, like buying a bond, uh, if they go out of business, you, you get nothing. And right. the, the point is, this is clearly a time uh, of great change and uh, probably of opportunity uh, for people who have, you know, money to invest. But one thing I wanted to take a minute, a few minutes to, to talk about, and Jeff, I'll, I'll talk a little, get your, your thoughts, sir. I, I think a lot, of, a lot of companies, a lot of individuals by necessity are not focused on the core competency of their business. They have to figure out who to fire, who not to, who to furlough, whether they can keep paying benefits, whether they can keep the lights on and all this stuff. Others, uh, you know, especially I think people, uh, younger millennials and such who uh, have jobs that maybe they're not overly passionate about or, or don't love or aren't thoroughly satisfied with, or even if they are, are now working from home. And many people are, are very quickly falling into a natural state of kind of feeling on vacation and less accountable. And certainly there are ways to be more productive at home uh, and there are savings. But I think a lot of people are really scaling back on productivity, whether deliberately or accidentally. And I think that there probably are people who, who listen to this podcast or, or who will in the future who are wondering, you know, what can I do with this time to further my interests in my professional life? Uh, you know, I want to be a data scientist. I want to be a machine learning engineer. I want to be a mechanical engineer. Uh, what can I do during this time? Uh, either I have a job that isn't demanding a full workload or I just lost my job and no one is hiring because no one can even conduct interviews. You know, I would say uh, one thing, if you want to be a data scientist, if that's the role that you would like to be in, uh, and, and again, certainly you can do that personally or professionally, find a project to do. It could be the Kaggle coronavirus project for sure. Anything relevant would be helpful. But, you know, go through an entire data science exercise of gathering data and modeling it and using it to draw conclusions and writing a paper or, or making visualizations on it. And, and, and maybe you can find an organization that's uh, looking for people to help with that, or you can do it on your own. But, you know, that is the kind of thing that will 
help answer interview questions uh, in the future when someone says, can you give me an example of a data science initiative that you participated in and some of the you know challenges you faced and how you overcame them? And I, I think generally there's probably, a, especially because computer science and software engineering can be so self-guided and self-taught, my piece of advice would be you know to pick up experience that you can point to, particularly the type that has a deliverable that you can you know, attach or send a picture of or whatever it is that would be useful to talk about uh, to help convey your value to someone who is hiring in the space. And then secondarily, this is a time for personal and brand and relationship building. If you are trying to get a hold of people to say, hey, I'd love to learn more about your thoughts on a cybersecurity career, uh, this is the time to try to hit up Robert Hershevik and, and see if he's open to answering. People all over the world, I, I have had some responses to cold emails. And again, I still write cold. There's always people that are above, bigger and better, wiser you know, have more money to invest, more wisdom to share than you do. There's always a, you know, higher to climb. And I've found it's a great time for kind of personal brand and relationship building. And Jeff, just wondering if you have any observations in all of this, you know, murky, dark, apocalyptic, zombie uh, reality that we found ourselves in, what might be a, uh, a ray of, of light or hope, uh, you know, something that someone could reach to and, and look to to kill some time and, and also be really useful uh, in their, you know, professional endeavors. Well, I thought you had some great comments and I, and I think a lot of those things hold true, especially the last thing you said, which was, you know, to reach out to people. Um, I, I already have several uh, quote unquote on the calendar uh, appointments with people um, for once this all kind of blows over to, to have you know in person discussions and reconnect and people are definitely a, a lot a lot more available even for phone calls um, so definitely I would suggest doing that um, I also think I mean <laughs> it's hard to say exactly what's going to happen but my guess is that we are not going to take the drastic uh, measures that we need to to quell this quickly and there will likely be a recession from this. And, um, but as I'm, sh I'm sure there are some entrepreneurs who listen and as I'm sure any entrepreneur knows, uh, one of the best times to start a business is coming out of a recession, <laughs> um, because the markets are generally, uh, a little bit more interested in, uh, things that you could do that are really going to change the game. And I think that, uh, I think that this is a time to, to think about that. Um, I will say one of the things I'm very interested in both personally and um, just from a conceptual standpoint, is what this is going to do for working from home, remote working situations. Um, I actually, I actually think in some ways my company is is more productive right now. Um, I think there are a lot of tools that are being kind of pushed to their limits, and I think it's exposing some of the potential of what tools and technology could do for not just remote work, but um, generally keeping people more in sync with what's happening in their business. Uh, and so I predict that, that coming out of this, there's going to be a huge wave of um, technologies and, and businesses that spring up that help create this environment in a healthier way, right? You don't have to work from home because of a sickness, um, but you can, and you can do it in a way that that's still really powerful for the business. So that's one that I've been thinking about a lot, um, and I'm curious to see what what comes out of this. But 
really, I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of opportunity um, as much as things are going to be bad. It's funny you say that because, you know, that's why you hear people talking about buying shares in stocks like Peloton, DocuSign, uh, Slack, uh, Zoom uh, video um, and uh, and the like. And uh, it's fascinating to think about that. You know, I certainly think uh, I, I would imagine most of the people who listen to this podcast would have the ability to offer consultation services to companies that need to uh, migrate either temporarily or permanently uh, to more of a virtual environment. You could imagine right now there's a lot of companies populated by non-technical people, big companies, small companies, uh, medical practices, legal practices, all sorts of things who would probably be more than thrilled. Think about if you are uh, a law firm and you are unable to hold certain types of hourly meetings that normally would have a, a an in-person or a video component in your office and everyone is at home. Uh, if you have three attorneys who charge $500 an hour uh, that miss out on eight hours you know, per day worth mm-hmm. of uh, billable quick. worth of billable hours, right? That's like twelve thousand dollars a day, sixty thousand dollars a week, two hundred forty thousand dollars a month in foregone revenue. So, as a consultant, in theory, you should be able to charge them a nice, pretty penny because the cost you're instantly delivering them. You can say, "Hey, pay me five thousand dollars to set this up for you," and you will instantly increase your revenues by X, you know, Y, and Z. And that is, you know, to me, like a, a simple low-hanging fruit. I see companies out there who are struggling, who who are are just slow and don't have the knowledge. And and you know, that's the kind of thing where whether you're someone who's looking for an opportunity to make some extra cash, start a new business that picks up customers in a tough time and then turns it into something else. I don't know, uh, but I, I'm with you, Jeff. I think you're right. I phrased a question in terms of like long-term strategies for kind of bolstering a a, a resume. Uh, But what you said is absolutely, if not more true, which is that there are opportunities out there that don't involve exploiting people, that don't involve buying every thing of hand sanitizer from a Costco and selling them for $70 on eBay. There are synergistic win-win, you know, relationships that you can enter into if you have technical expertise as well as agility. I think it was Elon, uh, Jeff, who a while ago described this concept of, of like technical agility being the amount of time it takes for someone at a company to have an idea until its users are actually using whatever that idea was. And as companies grow larger, as companies grow larger, generally that time lengthens, and that's where you get this also, this concept of the innovator's dilemma. Uh, but it's, it's, it's young, spry, agile, motivated entrepreneurs, especially those with tech backgrounds, who I would assume have the ability to hop into action and, you know, deliver some real value. I, I go back to the doctor or lawyer example. Not only are you making some money for yourself, if, if you enable a medical practice to conduct telehealth uh, sessions... Not only are you benefiting all of those doctors and that medical practice and the support staff by allowing them to continue earning, you're benefiting the patients who now get to see doctors and have face-to-face conversations that they otherwise wouldn't have. And the same thing can be said for a host of other 
professions. So, Jeff, I, I think that's, you know, a, a great point, and I want to be mindful of, of the time, especially with all that's going on. Uh, any any last thoughts, any, any, uh, any last comments, questions, complaints, or things I got wrong? <laughs> uh, to everyone out there listening, don't touch your face, <laughs> wash your hands, and um, please practice safe social distancing. Like th- this is really, this is not a joke. This is not a drill. And um, we all have to play a role in helping to eliminate this virus from the population as quickly as possible. So um, be smart. Don't trust things that you read on Facebook that don't make intuitive sense. Um, and really keep it simple. Like try to eat your meals at home. Um, if you're, if restaurants around you're open, if they're not try to order from those restaurants so they don't go out of business, don't hoard stuff. And, uh, for God's sakes, don't, don't buy out the store's worth of toilet paper. Um, other people (laughs) need to poop. You know, uh, you know, Jeff, I, I, I just, you know, an interesting point, you bring up, uh, the concept of kind of disparate information and certainly, uh, it's tough to know, uh, you know, what sources, uh, to, to believe and not believe. And, and I think it, it really is a, an important thing for people to, to, to kind of follow with, with all of those things uh, that you had said. I, I saw, I think, even, even the WHO, I think at one point they felt that young people could be carriers and at another point said that they couldn't. Uh, and, and there's just so much going on uh, so quickly that uh, I, I think sorting through all that information is important. But uh, on a somewhat lighter note, <laughs> I did not realize how much and how frequently I touch my face until the government told me that I'm not allowed to anymore. <laughs> and I feel that that is a universal experience, that the most universal collective experience all human beings will have from the coronavirus is an incredible realization of how frequently their hands come in contact with the facial area, the T-zone, as I've heard people refer to it, you know, the eyes, nose, and mouth that you're not supposed to touch. So, Jeff, thanks for your time, especially amidst all this. As I said, congrats on closing the deal. It's an awesome thing to get done in a tough time. Uh, And uh, with that, hope you stay safe. I hope you stay healthy. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Lloyd. Really enjoyed it. Uh